You're listening to Find the Outside, the podcast. I'm Tuesday Ryanhart. And I'm Tim Merry. This week on the podcast, we are going to talk about something we bring into rooms all of the time, which is this ongoing pattern that we that we share around there's a problem, how do we fix it, right? That kind of just init- that instinctual, immediate, don't stop to think about it, see the problem, go for the fix. That's what we're up to today, right, Tim? That's right. That's what we're talking about. It's funny, you know, because this goes right the way back. I remember when I first heard this, we were starting the company in the Netherlands, uh, Engage Interact, and I was starting it with my brother and Arjen. And it was actually my brother, he first said it. And he, in the, and he said, you know, we've got this pattern of problem, fix it. And what we need to be doing is problem, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That like the, the, the compulsion to rush to solutions massively increases the likelihood that we're going to perpetuate the very problems that gave us the challenge in the first place, right? And so, uh, and so, this idea that you have to take a detour, that you actually have to stop, you know, fully understand not only the context you're in, but your own kind of relationships and patterns of behaviors towards it. Mm-hmm, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, so there's like an intellectual understanding, an emotional understanding that takes place. And there's a point at which if you really want to fundamentally change something, you need to be connecting to your will. Yeah the incontrovertible part of you that's willing to go and tackle something significant either inside of yourself or out in the world. And that kind of detour then leads to the opportunity to fundamentally redesign something. So I think the the problem fix it or the problem wait a minute really comes down to whether you want to see significant change or not. And if you don't want to see significant change, sure, you can just go ahead and problem fix it. And there are some things like that. But there are also things that we need to fundamentally shift, both in terms of structure, but also in terms of beliefs and behaviors. And those things we do need to take a detour on. We need to stop and have a better understanding before we launch ourselves into action. I'm 100% with you. And my, my mind is going two different ways. And so I'm going to share both of them. The first is how problem fix it, uh, not problem wait. How much when we feel the problem is urgent, how much harder it is. Right. Oh my gosh. To, or to when wait. lives are at stake. Right, or exactly. When, right. right. Mm-hmm. So this this idea that problem fix it actually likely is very both very well intentioned, is responsive to the context we're in, is also how we've been trained. Right. So sometimes I work with doctors and they're like, We don't we don't get paid to problem wait. Right. We get paid, you know, like <laughs> We get paid to problem fix it, right? Um, totally. And so thinking about how much so many of us have been trained in that way, but also just the the good intention of problem fix it, right? It's like, oh my gosh, there's something that needs our attention. Let's get to it, right? It kind of can feel like a, a, a real generous, um, well-intended response to something that has urgency, right? So just to kind of name that what you just said, I'm with you 100%. And I understand that the felt experience can be quite different. Like my felt experience of getting to solve a problem is like, let's get to it. Well, it just, it makes me just, you know, I think it's worth saying that problem fix it isn't inherently bad, which is part of what you're saying, right? Right. Like, and, and like there are times when problem fix it is actually the best solution. Mm-hmm. When my son is running towards the road and I'm like, Elliot, stop. And he stops. I'm like, problem, fix it. It's not like, wait a minute. Mm, let's see what happens if the car right. hits him. <laughs> oh, look. I mean, like that is like, a, I mean, even saying that makes me feel I know. Like, nauseous. I know. I'm I so sorry terrible. I laughed. Right? Yeah. No, it's all right. I mean, so I think there's, you know, there are times when we're entering a crisis situation, you know, yeah. when a, 
when 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 first responders arise at a crash right. on a highway or a motorway right. they don't want you know you don't want to hold a circle and say what do we all feel and right. what do we think we should do right. you know you need to turn up and you need a crisis response but the but the 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 paradigm of problem fix it the acknowledgement that problem fix it is good leadership mm-hmm, is so pervasive mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's so pervasive in so many of the places we're working whether that's large humanitarian organizations government institutions corporations communities nonprofits this idea that a good leader is someone who can fix a problem it's so pervasive to me um that that's the issue you know it's like it's like on its own problem fix it is insufficient in an increasingly complex increasingly uncertain rapidly changing increasingly diverse world right we actually need better understandings before we act or we risk you know our one liner of making lots and lots of change but no real difference to the realities we all live in i love what you just said you said when there's a crisis right we need problem fix it I think part of the issue is not everything's a crisis. And that actually is where, you know, like our elevated, you know, like the speed that which we're moving, our elevated stress hormones, like we actually begin to respond to everything as if it's a crisis. So someone's upset, that's a crisis, right? I feel like one of the things I learned as a therapist first was like, it's okay for people to be angry and cry. Like you don't actually have to do anything. You don't have to fix it in that moment. I'm not saying that we want people to be angry or cry, but I'm just, there's something about like our ability to gauge what's a crisis and not, um, especially when we're working with matters of life and death, right? So like we work with clients who are having, who are their end user or the beneficiaries or the affected people they're working with. Often it is life and death. But that doesn't mean, for example, that your prototype is life and death, right? Do you know what I mean? Just right, like, right, so, right. so it's, it's, it can be really hard to keep that. Or the redesign of your decision-making right. model, which does impact, right. you know, beneficiaries of the child welfare system in New York, right? right? Or like, you know, folks are in direct experience of conflict or post-conflict with the ICRC. Like it does impact those people, but it's not, Ex- doesn't have to be approached with a crisis mentality. In exactly. fact, that undermines our ability to design responses that really adjust to meet those end users needs. That's right. That's right. Is that right? That's yeah. what I, that's exactly right. And I, uh, so I really appreciate you're making that distinction because I think part of the discernment and problem fix it or problem wait is what actually are we in here? Right. And, a, and, a, and, and most things aren't crisis, right? They, they just right. aren't. There are plenty of crises and we're going to work with those. And uh, so the second thing I wanted to say, just to bring us back, because I think it goes right back to what you were saying was uh, when I was a yoga teacher, remember I was a yoga teacher years ago. I remember. I mean, I don't remember, right. but like, I know that you exactly. were. For a, for a hot minute. Um, one of the things that I was so, because it's not, it's not my gig. It's not, it's not what I should be doing with my life. Let's just be really clear. Um, but one of the things we learned uh, was the space between the in breath and the out breath was a space of possibility. And I just want to bring that in here because that's what I often think about when we rush to problem solving. So in yoga, what we talked about is on every inhale and exhale, there are two spaces of possibility, right? There's a space you inhale, that pause where you turn before you exhale, right? Is a space mm. of possibility. New thoughts come in, uh, new imaginings come in. Like the, it's almost like there's a suspension. There's a stillness that creates space for something new to come in. And again, as you exhale, there's a, there's a turn, there's a pause before you inhale again. 
And so in yoga, you can work to expand that particular space on the top and the bottom, right? And that becomes a really, yeah, it becomes a really important space in your breathwork practice because that's where newness can come in. Uh, some traditions certainly say that's where God is and that the pause, right? And I just, mm. I just, I find that so interesting because if we talk about, we're not always in crisis, we need new ways of responding. We have to be doing things differently. We have to work with complexity. Then that to me is like that pause before you inhale or before you act or whatever it is, like that's where the possibility is going to come. It's actually not going to come when you're doing the action, but you have to pause. And so I just wanted to bring that in because that's been really rich uh, in my own life practice. Um, it's in a room that's you'll see. I mean, Tim, you've seen me a million times. That's what happens. I take a breath, I pause, then I exhale and I pause. Right? It's like, because that's where the newness comes in. And so that's like a physical expression of, I think, what we're talking about, like just pausing before you take action and like letting newness come in. Right. And I've seen you do that. I mean, you, you mean you're doing it for yourself in some ways as the host, often of a very complex room or set of circumstances or set of dynamics that we're working with. Um, but the your practice of doing that slows the room down too. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So there's something in... There's like, you know, when you talk about it like that or you think about it like that, it becomes not just a personal practice, but a leadership mm -hmm. practice. And so I do think, you know, I've just spent the lot, you know, the first part of this week, we were working with kind of like 42 senior executives from Nova Scotia government. Mm -hmm. So, you know, once a year, myself and Mo Drescher do these two courses. Um, and uh, and so we we introduce you theory there, you know, which I think is like in some ways is like and just for folks who haven't bumped into this work there's a, a bloke called uh, Otto Sharma out of MIT. He's developed a model called you theory. Uh, in many ways, it's not particularly groundbreaking. I mean, most indigenous cultures have something mm. that are mm. that are kind of like resonant of you theory, but uh, it's gained a lot of traction mm. um, as it's kind of like a an older white man. Uh, pushing it out of uh, an institution like MIT mm -hmm. and 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 it has and and it's a good thing to have gained traction because there's a real archetypal mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh process that it takes people through of like when you if you imagine a you being drawn on a piece of paper in front of you the problem fix it is to go from the top left hand part of the you directly to the top mm -hmm. right hand part of mm -hmm. the you and you miss the whole detour which is the traveling of the you right. itself right, right. And so, and so like, you know, and, and then he has a pretty good, you know, way of describing that journey to people that in many ways, isn't dissimilar to what you just said. Right. Yeah. Right. When you were in the description of the breath yeah. there, you know, which also is another archetypal pattern, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's an archetypal pattern that I think, uh, I think we can all relate to. So I think, I think th there's something in all of that, that I find quite powerful. And then, and the other thing that came up with the PSC execs, which I think, um, public, public service commission is, is that, um, this, uh, the, the, the problem fix it is directly connected to urgency. Yeah. yeah. You know, the way that you're talking mm -hmm. about it, like it's connected to our need, like, and the urgency isn't necessarily crisis. It can just be like 500 emails in my right. inbox. <laughs> right. Oh. Right. Yeah. 
Oh my god, it's so overwhelming. Right. I'm gonna like mm-hmm. right. I am drowning, you know. And I need to want to clear that mm-hmm. out, you know. Or like the pressure that comes from a minister or a senior leader and their right. urgency that as a high level manager or even a frontline delivery, you know, uh with frontline delivery responsibility, you just have to instantaneously respond mm-hmm. to, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think that these patterns of urgency and so I think what you're describing and what and what Otto is describing in that you is about kind of like pulling us out of the urgent into the important, right. pulling us out of the kind of day-to-day run-of-the-mill hamster wheel business as usual to say wait a minute in the midst of all this what's actually right. important in the midst of this overwhelm and this urgency what can we see that helps us be more discerning because there's no possible way we're going to get everything done that right. needs to get done yeah. no way you know and so this like stopping and pulling us out so we can see a bigger picture understand reality for what it is and then make smarter strategic choices about where we go on some level is fundamentally common sense you know but but and i'm interested what you think about this for me is like a very very basic invitation into systems thinking right because what it does is it pulls you out of the immediacy of problem fix it sort the problem respond to the email do this direction you know to actually attempting to look a bit more of a whole right a bit more of a layered understanding of the reality you're in and instead of just responding to what's most urgent you're looking at that reality and you're saying where could i apply pressure for greatest impact where could i take an action that would actually an, uh, have a positive impact across this whole situation. And that's a fundamentally systemic view. That's a shift in approach, yeah. right? Which is why often calling people out of problem fix it is so difficult. Not only because it's the dominant paradigm of leadership that is largely what we're rewarded for, but it requires a real shift in beliefs, in approach, in um, mindset and worldview and all mm-hmm. those words. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's not... My problem flicks it to problem. Wait a minute. I mean, it sounds so simple in those four words, but I actually think it's pretty fundamental in terms of how we approach challenges, problems, complex situations. I think you're absolutely right. I think that's so true. I hadn't thought about it in terms of kind of that bigger approach. And I'm wondering, as you say that, what we know about shifting approaches, right, is it requires you to let go of some stuff right? Probably some deeply held beliefs about maybe how the world works or how you should be responding to the work or, you know, so, so then again, of course we don't pause. Of course we don't do problem. Wait a minute, because that requires a whole lot of work, right? It requires a whole lot of looking Mm. at your beliefs, looking at your assumptions and and making a choice to kind of shift, which is more, you know, it's just like, it's more than a notion, right? Like you, until that becomes like your way of working, um, it actually takes some thought and some practice to do it that way. And also some understanding of why you might want to, right? Why problem fix it is insufficient, right? I was thinking uh, about, we were working with a client this week and and an issue came up and a small subset of a team kind of like sent through a whole, like we should do this and this and this and gave us a list of five things that they could do before next week to kind of solve this problem. Uh huh. And it was, I I just want to, like, I just want to pause and say the intent was very good, right? These were Mm. folks who saw an issue and thought, what are the tools we have that could actually help alleviate that issue? I just want to, like, there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And when we talk about shifting worldviews, like, there's just all sorts of beliefs underneath that, right? 
that we have a full understanding of the issue, that our tools are sufficient, mm-hmm. that um, mm-hmm. that we should be the people who respond, that actually there's, there needs to be a response, right? All of those things, like mm-hmm. just like, like a little bit of like pulling out of like, oh, pause. What does that mean? What, what else, you know, how could we look around? And so- I think that's incredibly hard. I think that's part of the, and, and also if I think about beliefs, I think the other thing is, can we trust anyone else to do it is often something we also come up with problem fix it, right? So often people are like right in there fixing it because no one else will. And I want to say this is not indicative right. of this particular team at all, except that it's indicative of all of us, right? How often, I mean, Tim, I feel like you interrupt that in me all of the time where I'm like, oh, there's this thing. Okay. So I can do this and this. And you're like, well, wait a second. Do we actually need to be the people to do that? Could they do that? Right. So I just think there's something also about like, like even thinking we're the person to respond as a, as a belief in a system, right? Like in a system, I'm one actor, right? So moving to systems change says, am I the one actor to respond? Right. Whereas if I go to a problem fix it way of approach, I'm the actor. Let me respond. right? Right. Well, it's heroic, right? right? It's a heroic right. model of leadership. Here I come to save the day. You know, it's pretty It's pretty white, patriarchal. Here I am in my shining armor mm-hmm. on my white horse, sorting everything out and making thing, everything okay for everybody. And the interesting thing in the example that you just gave of that team who came up with a bunch of, a bunch of incredibly mm-hmm. well-intentioned responses to the situation was that if we had launched into those, in, into those responses, what it would have done was removed the opportunity for those who were involved to resolve it themselves, right? Which is actually what's happened and what is currently happening with those teams is that a group of people from within the circumstances have set up, you know, and begun to like self-correct isn't quite the right word, self-regulate, you know, when you're using systems language, they've begun to self-regulate the circumstances they're in and through relationships and conversation and have begun to like kind of reestablish, like learn from the circumstance and reestablish just enough order right. for the work to continue, you know. And of course, if what happens is if your problem fix it, if you're the hero right. leader, every time that you step in and solve people's problems for them, you remove their ability to solve it themselves. And like, I mean, and I I don't think it's too too strong to say you remove their power. I agree. Right. You disempower them from solving their own problems, you know. And and of course, that's, I I feel like in general, that's what we, through all of our work, are trying to build. We're trying to build the capacity for people to turn to each other and find solutions that are unique to their circumstance and unique to their set of relationships that allow them to keep getting unstuck and keep moving. Right. And, uh, and, and, and it moves us away from being dependent upon, uh, one particular leader, mm-hmm. one particular approach, one right. particular set of consultants, one, but you know, this whole approach that we're kind of pointing at here as an alternative to problem fix it, I think actually, uh, begins to distribute leadership often, yeah. which is essential really, because we're also overwhelmed right. anyway, we have to distribute leadership to handle the complexity and, and overwhelm and overload of the circumstances we find ourselves in. All right. So I want to talk about, cause we met with another, uh, potential client, um, last it was. week. It was last week. If you're interested in who that client is, go check out our Instagram feed. And, uh, so we went with another potential client and we just, you know, very early right. conversations, handshake yeah. conversations, I think would be the, would be a, 
you know, correct way to describe it. But it was very interesting for me to hear how they have rolled through three of the top six mm. consulting firms globally, you know, so they've rolled through McKinsey, Boston Consulting mm-hmm. Group and PricewaterhouseCoopers, you know, in their efforts to lead significant change and to essentially loosen the bolts mm-hmm. on a system that's mm-hmm. become too rigid, too inflexible, right? And and and, and I feel like the 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 dominant and this is you know we've had our mm-hmm. beautiful Jacob Watkins on this show, so I'm making generalisms that are not actually met by some of our experience of individuals, particularly within PricewaterhouseCoopers, but the, but the dominant model of those organisations right, is to come in and fix people's problems for them, or to come in and be the mainstay. It's like you're adding a department to your organization, right, that's solving the problems for you. And I feel like that, Mm -hmm. I feel like we're a real Mm -hmm. antidote to that, right? It's like why that client was even interested in talking to us last week, despite calling us a two-person fly totally by the did. night shot no. outfit. And who, do you remember I, that? Do, I just anyway. want to say, I want to share what he said. You know, we've worked with these folks and he's like, and then, you know, we hear about you and you seem like you're doing something exciting, some things that are really exciting and doing some great work. You know, the two of you who are just kind of this fly-by-night consulting group. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's, yeah, you know, yeah. but he, he was genuinely intrigued by what we were yeah. doing and the scale at which we were working, because I think we're offering us, we're, I think mm-hmm. we're offering a genuine antidote to like the dependency that is demanded from the top mm-hmm. six consulting firms. Right. You know, but also the, this kind of like, oh, we're going to come in and give you an answer that mm-hmm. is increasingly untrustworthy, which is why that particular group have moved through three so rapidly over the last two years that like, the right. answers don't solve the problem, right? The art, like, like, like in many ways, right. we are in circumstances now where actually answers aren't trustworthy. Questions are more trustworthy because answers are out of date so quickly. They're like, what is it? The Incredible String Band used to talk about. Like, answers I do not. Are, you know, ever you know the Incredible String Band? Fantastic seventies group. But like, you know, they have this one line in one of their songs, which are like, answers are like fingernails. Oh. You, know, you grow them and then you clip them off. And I then mean, you grow them and it's kind of gross, but Isn't I think that neat. Good. <laughs> it is kind of gross. They, they say the, they say the same thing about opinions clipping. Too. Okay. All right. Well. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Robin Williamson. Incredible, incredible okay. kind of like British bardic poet, you know. Anyway, um, yeah, so, you know, so that's, I mean, it feels like that. Answers mm-hmm. are out of date so mm-hmm. quickly in this day and age where our circumstances are changing so rapidly, blah, 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 right? And so, uh, and so this kind of like this yeah. invitation to take the detour right. is also yeah. an invitation to be in questions, right? How do, how do we actually be, because if you can have an inquiry, that will actually last mm. you and you can be generating answers over time, but still remain in the same inquiry. Right. And so, um, I don't know I how do. I got onto that track, but like you see, you see where I'm going with it. There's something about the antidote that we're offering to, I think a lot of what the dominant culture of consulting is when you I start think, looking at I large think systemic that's change. Right. And I think that people are coming up against the limits of it. Uh, you know, and, and again, I think this is why this work that we've done with Jacob at PwC is so exciting because people want some of the some of the certainty of it, but they know that yeah. that something else has to happen. Something else has to happen. And so ICRC's done a great job of trying to navigate both of those pieces, needing some of the certainty because I think that when we talk about problem weight or pause or reflect or like get something from your will and not just kind of a reflex. I think we are talking about, um, one of the things we haven't talked about yet is 
how much uncertainty that brings, right? It is, I mean, it is just, it is not the easier way of going about things. Absolutely right. not. There's so, no easy so, answers. It's know, one of our taglines, you know, mate. Great. It sounds like problem, pause, reflect. Oh, that sounds great. But what you need to be ready for is the amount of uncertainty that brings and like sitting in the uncertainty and not trying to move out of the uncertainty too quickly because that's what answer, that's what answers give us. They move us quickly out of uncertainty, right? And so although we are very, very action oriented, right? I mean, like, you know, that's, that's part of what we're doing. Um, oh, yeah. Right. It is not without a pause and actually sitting and being with that kind of uncertainty. And I think as we're with clients over time, they begin to see the benefit of that uncertainty. Right. They begin to see how their decisions are better because they sat in some of that discomfort. They begin to see how um, the actions they're taking are different because they allow some of that discomfort. Right. And so, but it's, but it is something to be aware of working in this way. There's a lot more uncertainty. And so when your business thrives on certainty, it can be a really hard shift. Definitely. Yeah. And I I do want to say like, we get to action very quickly, but often Mm -hmm. that action increases the uncertainty. Often that action actually mm-hmm. adds significantly more data into the mix right. that doesn't make decisions easier, just better informed. You know what I mean? And so like we get to action quickly right. because we want to start discovering things through doing things, not because right. we want to get as rapidly as possible to a solution. Like we re- we truly believe that you will understand reality through running experiments more than you will understand reality right. through running surveys right? Like go out, run experiments, generate data, iterate, learn something Mm -hmm. more, move to scale gradually. You know what I mean? And so, and so, and that's not to say we don't do interviews and we don't do some level of situational analysis, but the purpose of that situational analysis is to enable us to get to action in a more targeted targeted way. Right. So I think that's true. um, And and then, I don't want to put too fine of a point on it, but you kind of just said this throwaway line that I think is actually quite important. You said that, um, you know, uh, uh, what happens when we work in this way is that your decisions become more informed. They don't become easier. So that, so I, I think that that's really, really important. Yeah. When you pause and you don't just go to fix it, it's not that the action becomes easier or the decisions are easier or even clearer. It's actually that they're more considered right? It just, it gives you time to consider it. And so I think that that's kind of, it's, it's yeah. a bit of a, a disappointment, right? When we think about, oh, we'll engage more people and we'll understand the problem more. Well, yeah. And likely it's going to make you even more confused for a little bit of time before you move into action, right? Because the, the more you engage people, the more you consider things yeah. more fully, the more paradoxes and conflict and differing opinions and perspectives you're going to encounter. So yeah. And so it actually doesn't make anything simpler or clearer. It just makes it more considered. And so hopefully it's smarter. I just wanted to like pull that out because you yeah. said that so quickly. It just felt worth it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It does result in things being better informed. And I, and I, th- I you know, con- I love that word considered actually, you know. Yeah. And I, I, I think it somehow invites, uh, I was just thinking about my football coaching weirdly. The, we often use the word when we're, when we're working with um, the kind mm. of youth groups in football or the teenagers, which mm. is composure. You know, when you get the ball in front of goal, oh. don't just snap at it. Right. Composure. You know, when someone's when someone's running right. at you and you've got the ball, nice. don't just boot it away. 
composure, you know, and there's something about what you're describing that invites a certain level of composure in your leadership, you know, an ability to like see the reality and not just like problem, fix it, but to actually make a composed decision. Like it, it, um, I just get a feeling when just, I mean, I just, when you were talking, Mm. I had like two words were coming up, which was like composure and dignity. There's some kind of like composure and dignity invites from our leaders when they're able to actually consider the multiple perspectives that exist around decision-making or the multiple kind of like uh, data sets that could influence that. There's something about that, that like, Oh, it becomes more composed. It becomes more Mm -hmm, dignified. It mm -hmm. becomes, it starts feeling more trustworthy, you know, nonetheless, that uncertainty stands in direct contradiction again to what so many of us are trained is inverted commas, good leadership. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, again like this week with the with the public service commission leaders it was like you know i was just like really clearly saying that i don't think that leadership is having an answer that's management you know like when you go in a manager situation like you have an answer and you create a fix and it creates Mm -hmm. leadership is genuinely Mm -hmm. not knowing what you're doing that's how you know you're leading because you're breaking new ground if you Mm -hmm. knew what you were doing and you're saying what you've always said you're not leading right? Leadership <laughs> is Star Trek boldly go when no one's gone before yeah. and all that stuff, right? But that's truly what it is, right? I mean, like real right. leaders on some level don't know what they're mm-hmm. doing. Like they have the courage to be out ahead, you know? And uh, and it's that capacity for uncertainty, I think, the ability to be yeah. in it and not freak out you're right. that is I a real hallmark right. of a leader. So how did these 42 executive yeah. leaders take that, Tim? Well, we had an amazing few, we had an amazing couple of days, eh? I mean, with with both Mo and I working the room with our kind of layers and levels of experience uh, in the work and in our lives, and then the kind of combination of kind of language we've been crafting with the outside that is just bringing really clear articulation to a lot of these concepts, and then Mo's ability to kind of like depict that visually and graphically in a way that's mm. so representative of the kind of equity of, of equity and integration of different mm-hmm. faces and colors and races and peoples, you know, like it felt like a really strong few days actually. And, and like, you know what, I mean, you know what I'm finding more and more like, you know, when we introduced the new operating model, which was mm-hmm. so much more layered than just structure at ICRC. Mm-hmm. And at some point it's just like, Oh, this is common mm-hmm. sense. System. Of course, we need to be thinking about beliefs in our operating mm-hmm. model. Of course, we need to be si- operating system. Thank you. Mm-hmm. We need to be, you know, of course, there's multiple layers right. to this and we can't solve the problem through just thinking about the structural layer, you know, and uh, and, and I think that's often where we're at. And, and And so I think when you really get down to it, it becomes very, very common sense to understand the multiple layers of reality right. so you can respond to it more effectively. You know, that we don't just opt for the easy answer Mm -hmm. because that's what we've Mm -hmm. been trained or bluntly what's easier. You know, if we truly want to be effective leaders, we actually have to begin to engage with the nuance, you know. And so so I think there comes a point where that just feels common sense, where if you when you when you get into the conversations enough, you're like, oh, yeah, why aren't we doing this? Why is this? This is common sense, but not common practice. When did this happen? When did we suddenly put in place all of these you know, ridiculous systems and structures that actually get in the way of our ability to respond with nuance to highly complex circumstances or connect to each other as human beings across our issues. You know, when did being professional suddenly become an excuse to not treat each other properly or to understand 
the, mm. the values that are in a situation mm-hmm, as well mm-hmm. as the emotions, as well as the facts, right? I mean, so I don't know. That's what that's that's how it landed. I felt like it. Like we got we got cool. lots of lovely rave reviews afterwards in the evaluations, so that was good. Um, but more, I felt like it landed in the room, and particularly in the government service. I mean, at least in Nova Scotia, where we've been running these programs now for mm. six years, we're seeing a change in how people are turning up. So I don't know what's happening, but people are. It's not yeah, like yeah, yeah. the analysis is earth shattering anymore of the situation nice. we're facing. It truly is how do we respond to it that is the question. And six years ago, the analysis was earth shattering. But but now it's like, oh, okay, yeah, well, obviously. Okay, now how do we deal with that? How do we work with that? So that's exciting. Yeah. We're probably near time. I know. Have you got any kind of like final, you know, final words of, uh, <laughs> you know, wisdom, breath, yoga, uh, yoga that's insight? That's good. Uh, no, I think um, not from <laughs> yoga, but I think like my final insight is actually problem, wait, pause, uh, take some courage. And so just wishing people courage to try that out and see, see where it lands them. This is a song called Landslide by Tony Clark, and it's a Northern Soul classic. Now, Tuesday, do you know anything about Northern Soul? Not even a little bit. In the north of England? Northern Soul was this movement in the UK of discovering uh, music from the United States that was largely by uh, black artists mm-hmm. and never really made it into the popular world. Okay. Right? And so, so there was a, and it was a working class movement in the UK okay. where people were finding incredibly rare records, you know, oh. that were from the 60s and 70s soul. Okay. Some of them never got beyond like three prints. Wow. Okay. Right? Okay. Three vinyls made, you know. And so the rarer the record, you know, often the more important it became. And so it was this incredible communication between like this British working class kind of like movement, mm-hmm. you know, and at the same time, this like reach into kind of like North American black soul music, you know, and then transferring that over to the UK. And in the UK, these people were like heroes that thousands would listen to. And and in the USA, they weren't even playing music anymore. They were working menial labor jobs. Whoa. Right. Whoa. And so it was just this, I've just read this whole history of Northern Soul. And it's just this incredible kind of like connection across race mm. and culture that's facilitated by music. And anyway, one of the classics of Northern Soul is a song uh, called Landslide mm-hmm. by Tony Pollock. And so I'll throw that out there today with an encouragement for everybody to go dig around in the coffers of Northern Soul, both in the music, but also in the in the content of what took place across, across the pond. Misery is rushing down on me like a landslide. Wow. I can't wait to hear it. I mean, I am hearing it right now. Oh. That's, it's right. playing. I love exactly. it. It's great. It's mm-hmm. a good one. Mm-hmm. And you, I think, I think you've discovered some poetry recently, which you're going to yeah. share. That's really exciting. You know, exciting. I was cleaning my house uh, and sometimes you discover things when you clean your house. This book I bought Yay. last year, it's called The Book of Light. It's a book of poems by Lucille Clifton, who I've read her on here before. She's one of my very favorite poets. Um, and this one is called, it has several sets of ellipses. So dot, 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 
is God, period, in quotation marks. So, having no need to speak, you sent your tongue splintered into angels. Even I, with my little piece of it, have said too much. To ask you to explain is to deny you. Before the word, you were. You kissed my brother mouth. The rest is silence. I just love her, right? Mm. Yeah, so what can happen when we're silent together? Yeah, huh? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think I think we're going to wrap this up then, right? That's it for this episode of Find the Outside, the yeah. podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find new your podcasts. podcasts. New episodes, excuse me, new episodes of the podcast are available every second Tuesday. If you'd like to get in touch with us about something you heard on the show, you can reach us at fi- podcast at findtheoutside.com. You can find links to any of the resources, poems, books, songs we mentioned during the show in the show notes for this episode over at findtheoutside.com backslash podcast or in the description for the podcast in the podcast app you're listening to You can to find the song we played in today's show and every song we played in previous shows on the playlist we created on Spotify. Just search Find the Outside on Spotify playlist or you can find a link over at findtheoutside.com slash podcast. And I totally need to go in and update that playlist. So you should definitely get over there. I'm going to go do it today. So there's going to be a delicious bevy nice. of new songs over there. This episode was edited and produced by Mark Coffin. Theme at music for the Studio. Find the Outside podcast is by Gary Blakemore. Right. Thank you. Take care, folks.